To Lion and Lamb, we are delighted that you're here in such a cold day. Shows some faithfulness. We appreciate that much. Let's start in prayer. Father God, you are great. You are awesome. And you have put us each where we are right now, but you have told us that faithfulness, submission, and obedience to your ways, your will, your word, are what we all should be seeking. Lord, help us to understand how important that submission, that obedience is to those watching underneath. We give you all praise and all glory and ask that you would help these words sink in that come from your word. We ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, uh, last month I started a series called Head to Heart uh, about passing on faith, genuine faith, to younger generations. In other words, our future leaders by parents and grandparents and, or just anybody who claims to be a Christian to whom others look up. Uh, and most of that first message was what I called a situation report, uh, taken from some studies by a guy named Josh McDowell in his book, Belief to Conviction, okay? And uh, those studies from 20 years ago uh, showed that young people in church, these aren't the people outside the church, in church, believed in God and even conducted their lives by some Christian standards, but they did so only by choosing that truth because it worked for them. And again, we're speaking broadly here. There were exceptions individually. But they were not necessarily looking at submission as a biblical command based upon universal objective truth or even a godly desire to submit. And McDowell pinned that situation on the subtle influence of postmodernism the belief that there is no objective truth and all truth and reality is culturally defined and determined. Postmodernism, as we said then, started in the latter part of the 20th century as the parents of that group were just growing up. And the young church attenders of the early 21st century did not gulp down all the postmodernist philosophy by denying all standards, but many did come to see that the to view the Bible as an individual choice. The notion, thou shalt not judge, was applied not just to believers who, I mean, or to other people who live their lives differently, but to the sinful life choices of those people. In other words, these young people often decided that Christianity provided a pretty good model for them by which to live. It worked for them. But they could not judge, could not call wrong the lifestyle choices, the conduct, even the biblically defined sin of others who chose differently. So essentially they chose what was true on an individual basis. And the clueless parents who saw their kids in church and heard, saw them living out the Christian life were happy. What they didn't see was that this was not because they viewed that belief, that lifestyle, as an absolute, but just as a choice that happened to work at that point in their lives. So, 
out of this confusion of turn-of-the-century teens, what is our current state of belief regarding truth and reality now that those young people at the turn of the century are adults with children? What do we see in our culture today? Um, last month I mentioned a night, or 2016 Barna study that revealed the contradictory beliefs that most people in the church uh, believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth, but 75% of that group still did not, could not call the choices of other people wrong. In a more recent uh, 2018 surveys of all Americans, six out of 10 agreed that Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. But a young, among evangelicals, you know, the strong, faithful people, it was only a third. Uh, in a Pew Research study in 2009, 51% of adults in America identified as Protestant, but in 10 years later, in 2019, only 43%. But you understand, our population is increasing and the number of people who identify as Christians is decreasing. In an, in, uh, an Associated Press article published in June of 2020, the Southern Baptist Convention reported a 2% loss of membership in one year. Doesn't sound like much, but that is the largest evangelical denomination. So during 2019, the SBC showed a membership decline of more than 287,000. It was their 13th straight year of decline and the largest single drop in more than a century. The short of all this is, the trend is, that the church is weakening and crisis become less and less of a focus for Americans of all stripes. Now, for us, you know, that causes alarm. It's easy to say, well, that's really bad news. Oh, by the way, When's the Chiefs game? <laughs> now, I know when the Chiefs game's in. Believe me, I know, I know. What I'm trying to say here is that I think most of the church today has spiritual attention deficit disorder, okay? We see all these things happening and going wrong in the culture, and then we get distracted by something else. Maybe good things, but remember, it's the good things in life that crowd out the best. So what can you and I do about this disturbing cultural trend? Uh, you know, we can, in our own households and in our own church, become or remain faithful and effective in our training and relationships with that target younger generation. Culture does not determine truth, but it definitely influences attitudes about truth, and perhaps this involves making the young more confident and secure in both the objective truth of the Bible and the environment or culture of the family in which that younger generation learns those truths. Now, it, that truth needs to be taught in a way that makes it coherent. In other words, matching reality, which I believe the Christian worldview does better than any other worldview. But it also 
needs to be taught in the context of relationship that will make it stick. So I suggest if we want the truth of the Bible to be engrafted into our young, we should work at developing the relationship taught by that very same Bible. So, But before we look at those vital relationships, which we will in the future, uh, we first need to examine how and why this is happening. All those discouraging statistics that we reviewed do not reflect anything new. There's truly nothing new under the sun. This has been going on since the garden and the fall. But what we're going to review today is the tendency at degeneration of the generations. But we must remember something, that our motivation has to be the desire of God. The Bible says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2. But he's told us in his omniscience, that ain't going to happen. Not everybody's going to believe. But that does not change his desire and our calling to make disciples of all nations to be light and salt to a decaying world. Last month, I just mentioned a course that Christy and I took quite a few years ago uh, by a guy named Bruce Wilkinson called The Three Chairs. And in that, uh, in that series or uh, that program, uh, he starts by reminding us of the story of Goldilocks. Okay, Remember, Goldilocks is the one where she goes into the house of the three bears, and they're not there. And she finds three chairs, and one of them is too hard, one of them is too soft, but one of them is just right. Remember that. Uh, Wilkinson makes the analogy to our response to God. Normally, when we talk about responses to certain things, you know, we hear encourage balance, which is which often means avoiding the extremes and ending up somewhere in the middle. And certainly today, that seems like all we see in the news are the extremes. And it's often a good thing to avoid all those crazies who will say just about anything through social media and otherwise to pour gas on the fire uh, to get you to click on their website. We're not going to talk about that today, okay? However, in our response to God, Wilkinson points out that being in the middle is not where we should be. Now, he's gentle in his approach by suggesting that all of us are in one of the three chairs, and he speaks to all three. The first chair represents those who are sold out, committed, devoted to God. These are people who are not perfect, but they're characterized as being faithful, Devoted followers, these are the doers in the church. They seek his glory, not his own. The second chair represents the person who is saved, knows it, but somewhat casual about their faith. This person usually goes to church, but kind of holds back on involvement. And this is where Wilkinson puts the greatest emphasis. This is the comfortable chair. The third chair represents people who are not saved, never made a commitment. They don't even know what Christ and his following is. Uh, They may identify as Christians because they were maybe brought up in a Christian home or born in America or just they're cultural Christians, 
but they don't have an understanding of Christ's sacrifice for sinners. All they know is that they hate hypocrisy. Okay? Now, before we get into this three chairs thing, I want you to understand, this is an analogy. This is not something straight out of the Bible. Okay? So just it's a way of looking at things. And first, we need to understand that we are in one of these chairs by choice. We are each personally responsible for the chair in which we sit. Becoming a Christ follower is an individual choice. We can't blame or credit our parents. What we do after salvation is a choice as well. However, the view of God and relationship with Christ that developed in each of us was likely greatly influenced in the environment, the home in which we grew up. And that upbringing oriented us to make God the center of our lives or give him a nod on Sunday or shut him out completely. So the concept of these chairs is the downward spiral from one generation to the next is not a biblical principle. It's not a hard and fast rule. But it will tend to occur if parents are not intentional about both training and relationship with their children. And grandparents become a part of this chain as well. Uh, Finally, falling away from first chair faith does not always involve a couple of generations. Okay? This would be the exception. You remember the story about uh, uh, Eli and Samuel and, and all that. Uh, and uh, Eli was, he had a lot of problems. He was probably what I would call a second chair believer, and uh, his sons were evil. Okay? Samuel comes along and he is faithful. He does everything right. He's devoted. However, his sons, in 1 Samuel 8, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So, perhaps there was an overwhelming evil culture at the time. It can speed up the process and cause children of very godly parents to drop or renounce that first chair faith quickly, maybe even without an intermediate generation. Now, when we talk about what can we do, you and I are not likely to change all the culture that our children and grandchildren are gonna grow up in. However, God still calls us to remain faithful and effective regardless of what's going on around us. So we are responsible for ourselves and our household and our local body of Christ, in particular, Fathers need to be the spiritual leaders of their families and work with their other half in the vital role of training up the generations. So with that, let's take a look at some of the examples out of Scripture. You know, uh, Scripture pre presents all of its characters with their warts. And, you know, you think of Moses, you think of David and many others, they had some pretty significant problems. But one person that we don't see a lot of, of negative about, one person who seemed to be completely faithful, was Joshua. Uh, 
And he stands out. He knew and he served God. He and Caleb went out on their reconnaissance mission and they came back not fearing man, but they feared God and said, we can do this. We can go into the promised land. He was discipled by Moses and he saw the mighty works of God. And the best known statement from Joshua is, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm guessing that's on some of your walls. Joshua and his generation had experienced the protective hand of God going into the promised land. He had first chair faith. But the elders in the generation that survived Joshua, they knew about the faith of Joshua and heard about the mighty works of God. They heard about the parting of the Red Sea and the water out of the rock and the manna from heaven and, and how their parents marched around Jericho until the walls fell out. Therefore, they believed and they followed the Lord, yet it was a, the faith of their fathers, kind of a second-hand faith. They're like, much like today's children of first, first chair parents. They hear the prayers, and they're aware of God's answer to the prayers. Therefore, they likely receive Christ as their personal Savior, but they're not sure they want to be as committed, as sold out, as zealous as their parents. So perhaps her parents were faithful, but maybe were less than fully effective in relating faith to their children. Maybe it was just the culture that pulled them away from their faith in Christ. But, in the, but the boldness and dependence on God that their parents had doesn't seem to be quite as strong in them. They appreciate the fact that their parents brought them up in the church and provided you know, protection from what the, the, the problems that befell their friends but they're content with a less zealous faith, and they watch their parents' faith rather than move to the first chair themselves. So they choose to sit in the more comfortable second chair. Now, Judges 2 records that after Joshua died and was buried, quote, all the generation also was gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and among the gods of the peoples who were around them, bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, how could that be? I mean... It seems incomprehensible to us because we hear about God's work every single week when you show up and hopefully every single day when you have your, your personal Bible study. We have God's word to study. But much of their faith was passed down by oral instruction. It could be that the second chair parents never told them the stories about their grandparents or if they did, perhaps this, these children asked them, what about your stories? They don't have any. Today, children of second chair parents see their parents going through the motions, going to church most of the time. Perhaps they don't see evidence of their faith in everyday life. They've heard about the faith of their grandparents, first chair faith, but they fail to see that in the second chair parents' lives. So they conclude that whatever their grandparents had, whatever they experienced, does not exist today. It's old-fashioned. It's out of date. It will not work for them, the grandchildren, now. In fact, uh, they may even see their parents' second-chair faith as hypocritical. And 
I've got no doubt in some homes that may be a fair characterization. First chair parents are characterized by commitment. We see this in life of commitment by Joshua. When a child grows up with parents who know and acknowledge God, but do not really honor, trust, or obey Him consistently, it can look a lot like compromise and can create an internal conflict in that child. So the sin natural progression goes from commitment to compromise to conflict. So it would be good for each of us to determine where each of us is personally in this chain, if you will. If you determine you're not a first chair believer, realize that others are watching and may be affected by your example. Even if you don't have kids or grandkids, people are watching you because you say you're a Christian and it will affect them. One of the greatest examples of first chair faith was exhibited by Abraham in Genesis 22, where we read about the account of Abraham's faithful obedience to do what must have been the hardest thing ever for Abraham to do. That would sacrifice his son, his only son by Sarah. Once again, when it became apparent that Abraham was faithful, he was willing to obey, even in that sacrifice, an angel of the Lord stayed his hand with the sword and provided a ram for the sacrifice instead. A couple of side notes here. Okay, when you think about that, that situation. Abraham was far from perfect. Neither are we. When imperfect people honor God, he will bless him in ways that are far more important than health and wealth. Second, while Abraham proved his imperfect love for God by a willingness, just a willingness to sacrifice his own son, God demonstrated his perfect love for us by actually sacrificing his only son for us. So despite this first share of faith of Abraham of putting God first, there was likely something missing in Isaac's generation because his Grandson Jacob lived most of his life putting himself first. In Genesis 25, we read about how Jacob manipulates Esau, tricks him to gain the birthright of the firstborn. In Genesis 27, Jacob conspires with his mom, Rebekah, to deceive uh, Jacob to think that uh, Isaac is, or Jacob is actually Esau whom Isaac intended to bless. That deception gave Jacob control of the whole family, but it also brought hatred from Esau. Then in Genesis 31, Jacob takes his whole family and all that he had gained from his father-in-law Laban and tricked Laban by fleeing away. These are not the characteristics of a first or even a second chair person. This is a third chair life. And people in the first chair have a strong and consistent relationship with the loving Father. Their daily walk with Him shapes everything in their lives. They spend talking to Him in prayer and listening to Him through His Word in daily study. And when emergencies hit, they're not thrown off balance nearly so easily because they are with God every single day. Those with secondhand faith watch their parents put God first. They saw mom and dad praying together on the couch and individually. Church fellowship was consistent and vital 
in their lives and they, where they saw their mother raising her hands in worship and their dad dropped something in the plate or the box. Their parents' faith did not end at noon on Sunday. Their parents took them to the rescue mission to serve, to serve food, to pro-life rallies, to pass out tracts. Uh, they were encouraged to engage in ministries when they grew into the teen years. Some were even taken on the mission field. But when they formed their own families, they knew God as a loving father and even had a Bible on the shelf anyway. For some reason, they just could not squeeze in the time with him daily. But as long as it didn't conflict with youth activities and entertainment, church was really an obligation, not a joy. But there was an added benefit. If they got their kids to church, they might keep their kids out of trouble. So the children of second-chair Christians grew up watching a paradox. Parents who tell them they were baptized and are members of the church, maybe drive them to church two or three times a month, who say prayers just generally at meals or maybe just holiday meals, but there's no consistency, no daily dependence on God, certainly no joy in His presence. So they grow up into the teen years in independent thinking. They realize that this is what is meant by the word hypocrisy. And if that describes their own parents in their church, why should they believe anybody else at that church is any different? God becomes a symbol of a religion, something that does not work for them now. However, there's always hope, even for those in the third chair. We read in Genesis 32 and 33 that the manipulative, deceptive, lying Jacob has an all-night wrestling match. He's blessed by God. He's renamed Israel. He humbles himself, and as a result, he seeks and, and, and expresses repentance and achieves reconciliation with Esau. God can work in the most difficult of circumstances. A child or a grandchild in the third chair, and living like it, can come to understand their need for and to know Christ as Savior just like any other lost person. But how much better would it be to avoid the pain of living apart from their loving Father for, the, for the, at least part of their lives? Uh, King David was described by God in Acts 13 as a man after my heart who will do all my will. And, and he is known for a couple of encounters with Goliath, yeah, and with Bathsheba, right? Uh, God uses broken vessels. He doesn't whitewash his characters. But the evidence for King David being a first chair uh, person starts with God telling Samuel to choose David just as a young shepherd boy to be the next king. He told Samuel that he was not to look on the outside, uh, but for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. When Saul and his army were being mocked for their cowardice, this shepherd boy faced Goliath and proclaimed, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Took some chutzpah to say that. After being chosen king, David brought back the, the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He loved God and his people, and he worshipped him through his psalms. He tried to pass his faith on to his son Solomon. He said, 
And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Solomon knew God. He built the temple. God gave Solomon so much wisdom and understanding that he was considered wiser than all other men. He wrote many of our Proverbs and many songs. However, he had a weakness. Women, 700 wives and 300 concubines, mostly from foreign people whom God said would turn their hearts away from him. It says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So Solomon ended up building altars for his foreign wives to to worship and and, uh, make their sacrifices on. In short, he did not keep what the Lord commanded, and God became angry with him. David was imperfect, yet he gave his whole heart to God. Solomon's faith was only half-hearted. So what about his children, Solomon's children? Rehoboam grew up with all the privileges of wealth and position due to his father's kingship. However, despite all those advantages, Rehoboam grew... In a, grew up in a second chair household, and therefore he missed the greatest treasure of all, the faithfulness of his grandfather, David. When he succeeded Solomon as king, he was confronted with a question, and so he did what was expected of him. He sought out the counsel of the old men who cautioned him that he needed to be a kind and loving king. Didn't like that. He's young. He wants to exert himself. So he listens to his peers, and they tell him, put the pedal to the metal. Be harsh with your people. And in doing that, he turned all of Israel against the house of David. We read in 2 Chronicles 12 that when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And as a result, Jerusalem was sacked by the king of Egypt. Finally, before his death, we're told that although he continued to reign over Judah, Rehoboam did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Today, American Christians are bombarded with temptations of possessions and personal pleasure and power and prestige. And the Bible tells us to love and serve God and others. Psalm 20 says, may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. So question, if, you were, if God were to grant you the desire of your heart, what would you receive? That might tell you the chair in which you sit now. Now, several teachers here have said that one can discern one's own priorities simply by looking at One's calendar and one's check ledger. How he uses his time and resources. In the New Testament, Paul appears to be in the first chair. He 
had a personal experience. He met Christ on the road to Damascus. He experienced the mighty works of God, and he put God first. He trusted the Scriptures to show that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. He gave his life, his whole heart, to reaching people for Christ. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that the most important gift of all is love for God and others. He wrote to people in churches to encourage love for one another. He loved them enough to confront them and admonish them when they got off track. And in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul describes a first chair person as a mature believer. This is the Christian who can discern God's will through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit allows the believer to understand, quote, the things freely given to us by God. But in the next chapter, 3, Paul describes some of the Christians quote, not as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. These second-chair believers were those who failed to mature, so Paul could only feed them milk, not spiritual meat. They were filled with envy, strife, and division. They bragged about which teacher they followed, whether Paul or Apollos. They lacked the discernment to understand while these teachers watered and gardened It was only God who gave the increase. Instead of focusing on men and temporal things, they should have focused on the foundation of Jesus Christ and things eternal. Paul also describes what he calls the natural man. He says this person, quote, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the unsaved person, person in the third chair. Because these people do not know God and they lack the Holy Spirit, they have no ability to understand things spiritual unless and until they accept Christ as their Savior. So for the unsaved to be saved, they must hear. Paul asks rhetorically in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? One of the temporal things we face in life is fear, especially now in our current environment. What do they call it? The cancel culture. People receive backlash for simply expressing thoughts, biblical thoughts that would be taken for granted just a few years ago. We're all intimidated to just keep quiet. And we should, we do need to exercise discernment because we don't always need to say the first thing that comes to mind, which gets us in trouble sometimes. However, when it comes to God's truth and the gospel, fear is not of God. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's 1 Timothy 1. On the way over here this morning, I heard a message about when Paul went into the Agora, okay? And that's the public place, okay? And he encountered the Epicureans and the Stoics, and and he talked to them in a way that they could understand. And Agora is the is the root for agoraphobia, which is the fear of public places. And the the thing that the, the, the teacher was trying to convey is that Christians are often guilty of a spiritual agoraphobia. In other words, we get together here and we talk about God. And we'll do it sometimes in our homes and with our Bible studies. But when we get into the public, 
you know, we're AWOL. We're not there. So, uh, you might appear to be pretty spiritual to your kids. You might go to church regularly, give generously, serve others, regular prayer, Bible study, and even have Christian plaques on the wall. But if, you're, if we are too afraid of what other people think to sow seeds, to garden, to get people to think about things eternal and reach out to the, to the lost with the gospel, what will our children think about our faith? Now, up to this point, we've talked about understanding this natural progression through the three chairs. And we've looked at the Old Testament examples, and then we just, we just talked about what Paul was teaching. The ultimate example of this concept is found in the words of Christ relayed by the Apostle John in Revelation 3. He uses three categories, hot, cold, and lukewarm. Hot refers to the believer on fire for Christ. Cold refers to the unsaved who has no clue. He does not know Christ. He has no faith, no relationship, so he's cold or oblivious to the things of God. The lukewarm person in the middle is neither fire nor ignorant of God. He's straddling the line with a foot in both camps. She's saved. She's living much like an unbeliever, though, giving a nod to God with a half heart. To her, just like to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, and this is terrifying, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, nor, nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, sounds like Jesus doesn't like this lukewarm stuff. The hot are his devoted servants that are sowing and reaping among the cold, many of whom are ripe for harvest. The lukewarm, second chair Christian, has a fire insurance policy in pocket, but really is just along for the ride with his eyes on the world. There are plenty of distractions and idols, but Jesus here exposes one in particular. He goes on in verse 17 of chapter 3. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing but realizing that, not, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So we have a tremendous temptation in this country, the most affluent in the world. We are in constant danger of becoming complacent because we generally have everything we need, want, could ever desire. We tend to see our wealth and our status as a result of our work and our intelligence. We forget to thank God that he gave us that work and whatever skills and intelligence and health we have. We start to think that material possessions are real wealth. But Jesus knows the truth and he taught otherwise. In Luke 12, Jesus relates the parable of the rich man who decides he wants to build larger barns to hold all of his stuff and says to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In Matthew 19, the rich young man asked, What must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I think Jesus is trying to tell us something about real wealth here. Now, let me be clear. Neither I nor I think Jesus is telling you it's wrong to earn, save, and have wealth. Okay? We're told to take care of our own. It's your attitude toward that wealth and what you do with it that is important. The first commandment in Exodus 20 is, I am the Lord your God. You, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a real temptation to seek possession, status, power, and all the world may offer and subtly put those things above God. In essence, they become our God, and they get more attention than the one who gave us all of that. So, question for all of us is, which chair am I in? Is it God and me? Is it me and God? Or is it just me? Revelation 3 has some good news. Could you go ahead and put up the picture there, Nick? Yeah. Um, if you've seen this picture, which, you know, if you grew up in the church, you saw it somewhere. It's probably on the wall of, your, of, of some of these old mainline churches. And you probably recall the Sunday school song. Behold, behold, I stand at the door and knock, knock, knock. If any girl hears my voice, if any boy hears my voice and opens, opens, opens the door, I will come in, right? That's what you associate with this, is being open so that the unsaved can walk in and accept Christ. But that's not what Revelation 3 is talking about. Look at the whole context. Immediately before he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus is rebuking his stray sheep. He loves them enough to reprove, discipline, and call them back, just as any loving parent would. He's not addressing the cold, the third chair, folks, because they don't know him. They're not his sheep. He's calling to his lukewarm second chair kids. And if these will repent of their half-hearted faith and have a zealous faith, he will open the door to an intimate, warm, loving feast and fellowship with the creator of the universe. I've said a number of times that I teach in order to learn. Okay, and I'm learning so much. Um, I don't know if this is convicting to any of you, but it is to me. I've got the greatest kids and the greatest grandkids. I, I would never trade them for anybody. But I can see this happening, and it makes me wonder. I think we cover the doctrine pretty well, pretty consistently, but I question whether I did the relationship well enough. I don't know. 
Time will tell. But we all should take this seriously. It is very, very important. So, where do you think you sit? Everybody in this room is in one of those three chairs. Could Maybe the first chair, you're hot, devoted, you're worshiping, you're serving for His glory. Maybe you have no idea what we're talking about. You're just cold and lost and you don't even know God. If, you, if you're in that chair, come and talk to us. Or that second chair, that lukewarm Christian who's thankful for salvation but effectively tells God, I can take it from here. It is to this middle group that Jesus speaks most directly. If any second chair believer has children, grandchildren, or if you're just, just younger people who know you and look up to you because you claim to be a Christian, you should understand that they will be influenced by your lack of faith, perhaps your hypocrisy, or you can repent and become a first chair zealous follower of Christ and point those young people, that younger generation, to Him as well. As the worship team comes up, I want to uh, go to that, the passage that we highlighted today, Revelation 3, and hopefully you can read that. Uh, so let's read in unison. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me, Lord God. Uh, this is a tough lesson, Lord. 